And welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Ussery, and I'm happy to have Walter Thompson Hernandez on the program today. Walter is a former New York Times reporter who is now moving into the fields of podcasting and documentary filmmaking. While at the Times, he traveled the world looking for and profiling fascinating subcultures. One of those was the group of black horse riders known as the Compton Cowboys. Their story piqued Walter's interest, and he recently released his book looking at their fascinating and fraught life, trying to hold on to their horses and nonprofit organization during a tumultuous year of changing leadership at the top of the program. The book is called The Compton Cowboys, The New Generation of Cowboys in America's Urban Heartland, and it's published by HarperCollins. Walter, as you mentioned in the book, Compton, California is best known to a lot of other parts of the country as producing great hip-hop stars like Kendrick Lamar and N.W.A., as well as the gang violence that spawned gangster rap. But can you give us a brief historical sketch? It's like one of the oldest cities in California, isn't it? Yeah. So Compton is one of the oldest cities in California. Um, It was founded in 1888 and sort of relegated as an agricultural space. You know, most of the city when it was founded it was sort of zoned off for, you know, farmlands and for agriculture and for horse riding, essentially, right? So Compton has sort of always had this, this really rich legacy of, you know, of farmers and, and, and of horse riders. And, you know, obviously the, the Compton Cowboys are, are sort of following suit. The uh, Compton Cowboys are located in an area known as Richland Farms. So what's the history of the Richland Farms neighborhood? The Richland Farms is essentially where every horse ride begins and ends in Compton. You know, it's this sort of like five acre zone that is essentially in the heart of Compton, you know, to local residents, you know, like folks know that there's horses in this area, but you know, to outsiders, like it's sort of like this oasis, you know, like this sort of like other world where we're, you know, kind of removed from a lot of the day-to-day of Compton and, and really sort of embedded with a really strong horse riding culture. I uh, went on to Google Maps to look at the overhead view of Compton and saw that it's just about 10 square miles, about three miles on each side. It's not just a huge place. No, it's not a big place, you know. And, and, and I think, like, if you're looking at Compton through, like, aerial, like, like this sort of aerial view, you know, like, you see that the Richland Farms are, like, you know, almost completely, you know, different than, than the rest of Compton. Like, there's, there's no sidewalks in the Richland Farms, and, and people ride their horses there. Over the last 30 years, Compton's seen a big demographic shift. What did the population look back in the late 80s and what does it look like now? In the late 80s, you know, Compton was o- almost predominantly African-American. And what started to happen like in the early 90s and, and mid 90s is that slowly and slowly Mexican immigrants started to migrate to Compton. And it sort of happened at a time when, when both Mexican immigration increased to Compton and to Los Angeles. But also when a lot of Compton's black residents, you know, were essentially pushed out and, and left Compton for cities outside of LA, for cities like San Bernardino, Fontana, um, places where you know property values were were cheaper and, and and rents were more affordable, and sort of like you know both things were kind of happening at the same time. And today, Compton is I think over about like sixty five percent Latino, and it's um, a story that has been happening throughout LA. Now, you'd seem like you'd be an ideal person to look at this because you have both Latino and African-American heritage. Right. Absolutely. You know, it, it's a story that I think is it, is so like near and dear to my heart personally, but also I think professionally, you know, I, I think I'm someone who I can kind of understand the experiences of both communities. You know, like I have a black father and a Mexican mother and I'm a product of both. You know, I'm, I'm both a product of, of a Mexican family who migrated to Los Angeles from Mexico 
and a black family who migrated to Los Angeles from, from Georgia. And so um, it really helps me to understand, you know, the racial dynamics of Compton. And you grew up not too far away from Compton, right? Right. Yeah, I, I grew up about 10 minutes away from Compton, kind of growing up in the area and, and, and sort of like as a child, knowing that this legacy of, of, of black cowboys existed in Compton. In a big metro area like L.A., even though everything is theoretically so close, it can just a couple of towns or neighborhoods over seem like a different world. The L.A. area, um, Los Angeles City and also County, is, is really sort of sprawled out, you know. And I think like the only other city that I know that, that resembles L.A., and it's actually a bit larger, is Houston. Right? Like Houston to me and, and L.A. Are, are kind of, in a sense, sister cities. Their neighborhoods are really vast and really spread out. And so, you know, things might feel close in L.A., but they're actually kind of far. Yeah, I know. Los Angeles County is supposed to be the eighth largest state by population. It's like 10 million people. And yeah. it's four times as big as Rhode Island. Right. That, that's it, It's pretty crazy, you know. And the city of L.A. has about, I think, four million residents. And the county has about 10 or 11 million, yeah. When you were young, did you see black men and black women riding horses? Absolutely. I was about six years old the first time I saw a black cowboy. I think what was so important about that moment is that, you know, it was a watershed moment for me, right? Like, it was a moment where the sort of stories of, of cowboys that I was learning about in school, you know, like that, of the experiences of white cowboys, and like, you know, what I was seeing on television, like John Wayne and Clint Eastwood, that was sort of confronted with the experiences of Black men on horses, which I, I had never learned about, you know, like, I, I, I never learned that there was a rich history of a black cowboys, you know, who, who following the Civil War migrated out west and, and, and became some of, you know, the West's like most, most daring riders. So when did you finally learn about black cowboys like Bill Pickett and Nat Love and Bass Reeves and such? Yeah, yeah. So I first learned about them when I was in college, you know. It was like that, that first intro to African-American history class and like learning about the Buffalo Soldiers and, and learning about this like really rich history. And, but it wasn't until I think I was in my early, in my early 30s a couple of years ago, right, where I really sort of dove into this story and, 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 and that legacy. Uh, I had a friend in college did his senior thesis on the black cowboys of Oklahoma. Oh, and wow. I really didn't think about them too much until it's about eight years ago or so. There's this British music collective called Rudimental. Mm -hmm. And they had a song called Feel the Love. And the video was just these great slow motion shots of black cowboys in Philadelphia riding in the snow in Philly. Yeah, yeah. In writing this book, you know, and, and researching for it, I, I spent so much time with different black cowboy communities, you know, throughout the U.S. I was in Oakland. I was in, I was in Compton, of course. I was in Atlanta. And I was in Houston. And what was interesting to me is, like, not just learning about the black cowboy experience, but also learning that there's also a distinction, you know, there's a sort of like binary between urban cowboys and, 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 and sort of more like traditional cowboys who, you know, live out in rural areas. And I think it was interesting because there were both so many similarities and differences, you know, and the cowboys of Philadelphia have been a staple for, for years now, you know, they've been, I think there's documentaries about them. They've come out in like in, in marketing campaigns and commercials. So they've been known for a while as well. I interviewed a woman named Christine Kendall a couple of years ago. She wrote a book called Writing Chances, a YA novel about a young man who gets involved in a, a program to, wow. to help get him back on the, the, the right path. That's so cool. That's really cool. So the Compton Cowboys themselves grew out of a group called the Compton Junior Posse. When did the Junior Posse start? The Junior Posse started in 1988 by a woman named Maisha Akbar 
who grew up near Compton, but moved there as an adult because she saw that an area like the Richmond Farms, you know, had a lot of room for her and her children. And, you know, she's someone who, whose own father and grandfather came from Oklahoma and who were black cowboys themselves. And so, you know, she always sort of was, was curious about, about, about that world and, and bought horses for her children. And I think after a few months, you know, started to, to observe how much of an impact the horses had on, on her, her own children and her friends. She started an organization and, and a youth riding club that, that existed for almost 30 years. So what do you think it's about working with horses and caring for them that brings out the gentleness in us humans? I think horses are, are really, you know, compassionate, really beautiful, sensitive animals. You know, I think like they, horses do a really great job at sort of diffusing any type of aggressive energy. In writing this book, I spent so much time with the cowboys and their horses. And I think I was able to see that, you know, if we are to approach a horse, you know, we have to be calm. We have to be sort of softer. And it really does, does something to, to our spirits. You know, it really teaches us that there are different ways to communicate and to relay a message. And, you know, aggression isn't always the answer. And so horses to me, you know, are, are really sort of in such intelligent animals. They are so perceptive. And they know, you know, when your energy is pure or not. After your experience, you, you did grow up around horses, some when you were younger. But after the experiences hanging around with the Compton Cowboys, did you find that your own emotional range kind of opened up and uh, you could go a little bit softer if needed? Yeah, I think so. You know, like I'm obviously a person of color, you know, who was born and raised in, a, in, in an urban community with a lot of hardship and, and a lot of struggle. I think for me, you know, like I've, I'm someone who have also like have, have dealt with PTSD-like symptoms, you know, depression, anxiety, things like that. And so, you know, I found it really interesting and transformative that, you know, I was at the ranch to really document the lives of, of these cowboys and, and to understand the, the role of horses in their lives. But I think after, you know, a few months, I started to, to notice the, the, you know, the, the impacts of these horses on myself. And I, I was also, you know, learning so much from these horses. When Ms. Akbar had the program up and running, what was her standing in Compton like? Did everyone know her? Did everyone admire what she was doing? Or, Yeah, you know, Maisha is, is, is such an incredible human being. She has like such a sort of tenacity and resilience to her. And, you know, she's like a, a really sort of like big personality, you know, and she became known around Compton by, by everyone, you know, uh, she becomes a sort of like, like a, a pseudo mayor of Compton, you know, she knows everyone and, and she's raised so many young people throughout the years. But it seemed like in a, a lot of interactions with the public when they're out riding on the public streets, there was some level of shock and amazement when they would still see them. It's a mixed bag. You know, I think like most of Compton's residents know about the Cowboys, but a lot don't. And, you know, there's still something to be said about the ways that, that people marvel at the sight of Black Cowboys, right? Which is, you know, a big part of this story, you know, like a, a big part of the story is that the Compton Cowboys really want to normalize Black cowboy culture. They play it up and they live it up, you know, and, and they also recognize that in the context of Compton, you know, they're like often like movie stars and everyone knows them, everyone waves at them. And it, it's a really great sight to see. One of the Cowboys used his notoriety to pick up women. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, you know, I think like most of them are young men, you know, who, who are, are obviously attracted, you know, to, to, to people and try to go on dates by any means necessary, you know. Play to your strengths for sure. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. 
fairly early on, it seems, in the, the junior posse, Ms. Akbar changed the riding style to an English style with the, the britches and the helmet. Why did she make that change? Why did she go against the, the Western heritage? It was a really big moment, you know, when when Maisha decides to to switch from, from Western writing to English style, you know, which is more formal, you know, comes with a, a much more quote unquote sophisticated approach to writing. You know, you have to wear these long boots, you have to wear, you know, polo shirt, a hat. It, it sort of is a sort of like really English distinguished form of writing, right? As opposed to, to Western writing, which is more sort of like, you know, daring and adventurous and, and aggressive. And I think her decision to do that was really founded on, you know, economic incentives. Maisha sort of understood that the sort of equestrian English style writing community had more resources and more funds to support her program. And so um, that moment really becomes like a watershed moment because not only does she choose to change the writing style, but a lot of the young people who were in the program, you know, decide not to write anymore because, you know, they rode Western style because it was fun and it was exciting, like sports were. But when she sort of moved to English, she lost a lot of kids, like both in a figurative sense, but also literally as well. And at the beginning of the book, there's a very long chapter about the Cowboys getting ready for the Compton Christmas Parade. And it had been a long time since they had ridden in the parade. Yeah, yeah. Before 2018, the Cowboys really hadn't regrouped in, in about 15 years, you know, some of them were still riding, but 2018 was a, a really big year for them. You know, it was the first time that they had rode in the parade together as adults. And it kind of showed, you know, the, the resilience of the um, cowboy spirit in Compton. Was it the shift to English that kept them from riding together for so long? Yeah, I think so. I, I think it was a shift, but I also think it was, you know, it was life, you know, and, and a lot of them started to have families and, and needed to work and you know, in, in, in Compton, being a cowboy isn't really lucrative, you know, like you don't earn money being on the ranch. And so people had to work and, and, and some people moved away and they sort of came together as adults and it was really beautiful to, to experience. Let's meet a few members of the current Compton Cowboys. And first up is their leader, Randy Hook. Randy Hook is the leader of the Compton Cowboys. He's Maisha Akbar's nephew. He's someone who was born and raised on the ranch and you know, has, has sort of always had this dream of one day running the ranch. And so when his aunt essentially handed him the reins, you know, pun intended, it was a big moment for, for Randy. And, and you know, he's someone who, who takes so much pride in what he does and, and really wants what's best for the Cowboys. He puts himself through a lot of hardships trying to keep this organization going. His personal life does suffer because of it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think Randy goes through a lot and it's really taxing to be their manager and it's really taxing, I think, physically and emotionally to to have so much responsibility on, on his shoulders. And I think the, the effects are visible. We may make fun of managers in a business sense, but keeping X number of people motivated yeah. and working together, pushing in the same direction, it's not easy. No, it's a lot of work and, 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 and you're absolutely right. And, and I think, you know, the, the role of managers often, nobody really sees what they do behind the scenes, but a lot of managers are always working and working really hard. Were you lucky to have good editors at the New York Times? Yeah, absolutely. You know, like working at the New York Times was, was a really incredible opportunity. And my editors, I was really lucky to have editors who were young and kind of understood what I was, what I was interested in. Now, when you were working at the Times, you had a beat where you went around the world looking at subcultures. Was there another subculture that almost 
interested you enough to write a book about it before the Cowboys came along? Yeah, yeah. I hosted a New York Times documentary about Los Angeles Chicano lowrider car culture in Japan. And I think, you know, being in Japan, working, hosting that video was, was such a, a transformative experience for me. You know, it, it was just so, so fascinating how, you know, a, a subculture in Los Angeles, how it could essentially be be transported and transplanted in somewhere like Japan, you know? So like, it was, it was a really incredible experience. And I actually left that story with, with more questions and answers. When you went down to Houston researching this book, did you get to see the, the car culture down there too? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, there's a huge car culture in Houston. And like I said, I think Houston really, in so many different ways, reminded me of, of Los Angeles. Up next, we have Trey Hosley, and he's a guy that's had legit success in the pro rodeo world. Trey is is right now um, one of the only Cowboys who, who's actively competing. And he's someone who also grew up in Compton, you know, grew up as a, as a young writer in, in the program. And, you know, he's really making a, a name for, for himself in the black rodeo circuit. And, you know, he, he trains horses, he, he trains people, and he's kind of one of the, one of the only Cowboys who is a, a full-time Cowboy. You know, he, he wakes up in the morning and, and he goes to sleep, you know, just thinking about horses and, and competing. So when he goes on the rodeo circuit, did he talk to you about what it's like to be a black man in, in a very white world? There were so many conversations like that. And I think ultimately, you know, Trey has experienced a lot of discrimination um, throughout the U.S. And, you know, it, it's, it's interesting, too, because I think, you know, Trey's someone who competes both in the black rodeo circuit and in the, you know, like larger, more well-known rodeo circuit. And his experience in the black rodeo circuit is, is almost like a night and day experience. Like there's no discrimination and he feels really at home. Kenneth Atkins didn't grow up as rough as some of the other people in the Cowboys did, but he still has plenty of demons that he's fighting against during this story. Kenneth is, is someone who is, is still actively, you know, combating alcoholism. And, and, and I think for him, you know, it's what I learned was that, you know, it's something that runs in his family. And these sort of demons are, are something that he he deals with every single day. And, and often the remedy is, is horse riding, is, is to ride his horse, you know, and it's often the only peace and the only salvation that, that he experiences is, is, is riding his horse. And, you know, he's, he's a really talented rider. He kind of grew up in this middle-class home, but um, I think he's the one who, who, who deals with the most demons. Now in the author's note, you talk about how the traditional kind of journalistic remove you might have from the people you're covering kind of fell by the wayside. So as that was happening and, and you're trying to help him in some way, how do you let that affect the writing and the work and letting your humanity come through and, and help out a fellow human being? I think that was one of the struggles that I, I really faced, you know, I, as a journalist, I think, and, and, you know, they don't really teach you to deeply care about or, or form a relationship with the people you spend time with, you know, with your, you know, quote unquote subjects. And so I, I really struggle with that because I think before be, being a writer or a documentarian or a journalist, I'm a human being and I'm someone who I feel very deeply about, about people and I'm an empath. And so like, I, I really struggle with that idea of, of not helping out, you know, and, and sort of like learning how to balance between like, you know, interviewing and working and also being, being a human being who, who is kind and who's caring and compassionate. And, you know, it, it's to answer that question. I'm, I'm still trying to figure it out. You know, I don't have the answers, but I think I'm, I'm, I'm better than, better today than, than how I was. But being such an empathic person and 
being in this community that's been hit hard by violence over the decades. And these people that you're getting to know have lost so many people close to them. Did you feel overwhelmed in the process of the research? Yeah, I think it was overwhelming, you know. I think what really helped, though, is that I am a member of the community. And, and I think, you know, writing nuance and context into the scenes that were violent, you know, really helped. And you know, I think it, it, it really only takes, it takes someone from the community to write about the community. And I think that historically, it's, it's usually, you know, like writers who don't share a, a racial or ethnic background who, who sort of like parachute into communities. And I think for me, it was different. You know, like I, I really wanted to write about the Cowboys in a way that was respectful, but ultimately honest. And um, I think I succeeded in doing that. There would be points in the book where the Cowboys would fight amongst themselves. And I was going, man, that's, you know, not the world I know. I'm an old man now, so we're not so inclined to get in fights as younger guys are. But, you know, it seemed true to kind of like the cowboy mythos. I mean, people would throw hands when they had problems with each other. These guys are cowboys, you know, and, and, and I think like like any cowboys, you know, cowboys are sometimes it gets rowdy and, and they're sort of independent. And, you know, it, being a cowboy comes with this inherent sort of counterculture mentality. And I think, you know, sometimes that that comes up in their, in, in their day to day experiences and they would absolutely fight sometimes. And that cowboy culture is kind of creeping into hip-hop culture and, and mainstream culture with like Lil Nas X and, and other artists adopting cowboy personas. It's been really cool to see. You know, I think black cowboy culture has a sort of reemergence every 10 to 15 years or so, you know, with like Blazing Saddles or like Wild Wild West or, you know, Django Unchained. And I think now with Lil Nas X. So I think, it, you know, Black cowboy culture has kind of always been around, you know. I'm, I'm not the first to, to write about black cowboys, and, and I hope I'm not the last, you know. The Compton Cowboys aren't even the only cowboys there in the Los Angeles area. Tell us about the riders up on the hill. Yeah, so the, the, the riders on the hill are part of this the South Central Riding Club who, you know, in a similar way as, as the cowboys are, are the sort of like, you know, second, third generation riders who, who came from the South. And their stables actually burned down a few years ago. So they're without stables, but there is, you know, sort of like sometimes competitive energy between both, both riding communities. They actually express their displeasure with kind of the image that the Cowboys are projecting. What, what problems do they have with the Compton Cowboys image? I think the biggest problem is that the Compton Cowboys, you know, oftentimes don't prove depict this idea of, of tradition. You know, they, they most times don't wear a cowboy hat or cowboy boots or, or anything like that. You know, sometimes they're, they're in house sandals and house slippers and running shoes. And sometimes they, they ride bareback with no t-shirt on. And I think for a lot of cowboys, you know, who, who really sort of uphold tradition, they find offense to that. And, you know, to me, like, I, I, I see that as, as being interesting, right? Because I don't think there's, there's one way to be a cowboy. It's like there's a one way to be a human being. I'm sure back in the day, Cowboy would get up. If he didn't have too many duties, he'd hop on without a shirt and yeah, just right. ride around the spread and see what was going on. And Exactly. Exactly. I agree. The one female member of the group that we get to meet is Kiara Wade. And she's another one that has a future in active rodeo competitions. Kiara is the only woman in the group. And she's someone who, she's a, a third generation rider herself, you know, and she's someone who has these really beautiful aspirational rodeo dreams and you know she's encountered setbacks her younger brother was was shot and killed 
She's faced numerous injuries, but she's still really hopeful about the future. And, and she's someone she really represents, you know, this, this really resilient spirit. And, you know, she rides for the experiences of other black women. And she was a latecomer to the, the Compton scene because she had ridden up in the hills before. Yeah, yeah. So, so she was essentially a part of the competition, you know, and, and someone who only joined the Compton Cowboys later on in life. She's one of the reasons why you went to Houston as part of your research as well. I finished the book in Houston, you know, I met Kiara in, in Houston and, you know, I spent about two weeks with her and her friends there and her daughter, you know, just trying to, trying to understand like how, what it meant for her to travel to Houston and to start a new life. And the book ends in that way. For Randy trying to lead this organization into a new era, you know, he's a guy that's ridden, he's taught other people to ride, but the administrative side is new to him. The fundraising side is new to him. And while he's trying to get a handle on things, it seems like his aunt, Maisha Akbar, is busy trying to dismantle the ranch of all of his assets. Yeah, yeah. I'm, you know, it wasn't easy for Maisha to, to let go of the ranch. You know, like the ranch was, it was essentially a child of hers that she helped raise and, and, and brought into this world for over 30 years. So I think, you know, there's a really sort of big generational component there there's always going to be a sort of rift between younger folks and older folks. And I think the Compton Cowboy story really, really highlights that, you know, Maisha has, has her own ideas about how to raise money, how to run, run the ranch and, and Randy has his own. So what's the current status of the Cowboys? Well, the pandemic has, has, has really impacted the ranch, you know, um, they have furloughed a few of the Cowboys. They are no longer, um, holding their, their youth riding club, they're still surviving from donations, you know? So it's like the ranch has always sort of been in this precarious position and now even more so. So you mentioned in the book that you studied ethnography as part of your graduate studies. In that program, what did you pick up that allowed you to do a better job with the book than you would have done before that? I think I'm already, you know, a, a pretty good listener and I'm pretty perceptive about people and about the human experience. But I think in my graduate you know, program, what I really learned was the process by which to, and how to document a story and information. Things like after an interview, I'm supposed to you know, take notes about what I saw, what I heard, observations about the ranch, about people, like sort of developing you know, storylines. And yeah, like I was just able to really take these sort of like theoretical ideas about ethnography, about anthropology, and really sort of apply that in, in a very real way. Your book came out after the pandemic had started, so you didn't get a chance to tour as an author might normally. What has the virtual tour circuit been like for you? It's been interesting. You know, it's, it, it's, I'm mostly a really positive person, you know, so like, I think it's been a really interesting experience. Like, you're right, like, like this is my first book tour. Everything is virtual. I, I think I'm at that point where Zoom fatigue is happening for me. But it's been great. I think we're all doing our best. Like we're all trying to do our best and we're all trying to adapt to what's happening around the world right now. And it's not that bad. It, it could be a lot worse. Now, is that your original New York Times article above your shoulder there? This is a story I wrote two weeks ago about the Compton peace ride that the Cowboys led two Sundays ago. And, and, and you know, it's interesting because like I've, I've never framed any story I, I've ever worked on. You know, most of them have been in print, but something told me to frame this one, you know, just because I think of the moment and, and what it meant. So are there any other big projects that you're working on right now that you can share with us? It's interesting because like I'm actually transitioning out of journalism. I've already signed my next book deal to work on a memoir and a story about my mom and I and about sort of this idea of belonging. And I'm also directing and producing for a TV and film as well. So I think for me, you know, journalism has been really 
incredible, but I think the stories that I work on deserve larger platforms. What type of directing are you doing? Short film and, and documentary work. Kind of thinking about like some of the stories that I've worked on as a New York Times journalist and converting those into the docu-series. Your photography made its way into the book as well. You didn't have an outside photographer come in. You know, I also come from a, from a visual background and I think like most times writers can't take photos and, and people who, who take photos can't write. But, but I think, you know, I feel really fortunate to, to be able to do both at a high level. Well, Walter, I want to thank you so much for spending a few minutes today. I'm, I'm sorry to drag you back on Zoom yet again, but I want to let everyone in, here in Memphis and our affiliates around the country be able to share this wonderful book. No, I appreciate this so much. Thank you for this interview. Walter Thompson Hernandez is the author of The Compton Cowboys, The New Generation of Cowboys in America's Urban Heartland, which is published by HarperCollins. I'm Stephen Ussery, and this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is produced in the studios of FM 89.3 WYPL Memphis, a service of the Memphis Public Library, a division of the City of Memphis. Book Talk is copyrighted by the Memphis Public Library, all rights reserved.